0: great to see you all uh, gathered today. Um, I'm not sure if many of you came to my first talk last week on John chapter 1, but we're looking at the explosive claims uh, that Jesus made. Um, uh, A couple of weeks ago I was reading an article that claimed that Genghis Khan was the greatest leader in history. Um, I don't know what you make of that claim. You may have your own pick for who you think is the greatest claim. But whether... Genghis Khan is the greatest leader in history or not has very little impact on me and my life. But what I want to suggest is the claim that Jesus makes is massive, it's huge, explosive and it even has impact on our lives uh, to some 2000 years later. So that's what we're going to be looking at. One of the claims that Jesus uh, tends to make is his claim to be uh, equal with God. Um, I'm often asked by my Muslim friends where in the Bible does Jesus ever say that I am God, worship me? And one approach that I usually tell them, uh, usually uh, go by is to tell them a story that comes from uh, John chapter 5, the story that comes just before the passage that we read. Um, so I'm going to tell you the story, and then we'll go on to how I usually answer the question. Um, there was a, a pool in Jerusalem called Beth Bethsaida, which was surrounded by five colonnades, and there a whole bunch of invalids used to gather Blind, the lame, those who couldn't hear, etc., etc. And uh, they believed that when the waters were supernaturally stirred, that the first one in would get miraculously healed. There was a a lame man there uh, who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus found out that uh, he'd been lame for for that long, he said to him, "Do you want to get well?" And the man said to Jesus, "Sir." I've got no one to help me to get into the pool when the waters are stirred. And usually as I'm trying to get in, someone goes in ahead of me. And so Jesus says to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man immediately gets up, takes up his mat and walks. Now the day that he was doing this happened to be a Sabbath where it's not permitted for Jews to do any work on And when the Jewish leaders saw that this man was carrying his mat and walking on the Sabbath, they said to him, why are you doing what's unlawful for you to do on the Sabbath day? And he said, well, the man who told me to get up and uh, also told me to get up and take up my mat. And they said to him, well, who told you to do this? And He didn't know who Jesus was, and he couldn't point him out in the crowd because Jesus had slipped out into the crowd. Later on, Jesus found the man and said to him, See that you stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. And so the man immediately went back to the Jewish leaders and told them that it was Jesus who was uh, doing these things. And because of this, because Jesus was telling people to break the Sabbath, and doing what was himself unlawful to do on the Sabbath. But the Jewish leaders started to persecute him. And Jesus said to them in reply, Well, my father is at work to this day, Sabbath day, and I too am working. And because of this, the Jewish leaders wanted all the more to kill him, because not only was he doing work on the Sabbath, but he was even claiming equality with God by calling God his own father. Now I usually say to my Muslim friends, now Jesus responds to this accusation. Do you want to hear what Jesus said? Because in the Quran, every time Jesus is challenged about whether he's claiming equality with God, he denies it vehemently. And so they're usually interested. And I take them to the passage uh, that we just read out. Because it's very clear in this passage uh, that Jesus makes massive claims about himself that puts him on a par with God. And Christians, know, my Muslim friends, know that um, if these claims are true, well then that is a game changer for everything. For Islam, for us, for the whole world. Jesus makes massive claims about himself with equally massive implications for the likes of all of us, even down to today. And the Jewish leaders understood this because if these claims are not true, then they were perfectly justified in wanting to sentence him to death. Because in their own law, anyone who made such claims, uh, unfounded claims, uh, would be guilty of blasphemy, guilty of the death penalty. But if these uh, claims are true, then they realize that it would be massively different for them as well. So what I want to do today is uh, just quickly go through these explosive claims that Jesus makes about himself. And then I want to take us through the evidence that Jesus himself provides because extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And then finally I want to see how we ought to respond in light of these claims. So let's go. Firstly, what we uh, need to remember is that it's important to realise that Jesus is speaking to Jewish Uh, thinkers who are very monotheistic in their thinking that is uh, they believe that there's only one true living God on a level all by himself and everything else is a distant second massively distant second Uh, everything else is created uh, not divine Um, uh, and what we're looking at is this is incredible because we're getting an insight I think into the very um, Uh, life of God as we look at these claims that Jesus makes, not only about himself, but in particular about the relationship that he himself has with God, who he keeps on calling uh, his father. Because it's like we're getting an invite, I think, into a lunch, uh, if you like, with uh, the Holy Family, with with God, the Trinity. And uh, we're getting an insight, a glimpse into what it's like for them um, as they live in their home together. Anyway, Jesus uh, repeatedly calls himself the Son and uh, God, his Father. Um, so what we're looking at is two clearly uh, distinct individuals. Uh, we've just got to keep on remembering equality doesn't mean sameness. Uh, God the Father and God the Son are different to one another. So that in verses 19-20, the Father, we're told, clearly leads and directs and shows the Son everything. Um, now, uh, my Muslim friend uh, likes to point out this uh, 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 this part in verse nineteen. The Son can do nothing by himself. Uh, a similar thing is said in uh, the Quran as well. He only does things by the permission of Allah. Um, but I say yes. But this is just indicating the difference there is in uh, the Trinity. Just like human sons naturally defer to their fathers, uh, I. While my father was still alive, would regularly defer to him, even though um, uh, he regularly asked me my my opinion on things. But such is the respect that a son normally affords the father, their own father, that they always respect them and uphold them and defer to them in most matters, uh, because um, just because uh, um, uh, we may have different abilities and. I may have gotten a better mark than him. He never got past uh, primary school, actually, my father, But and I went to university and did multiple degrees. Um, I would always naturally defer to him because that's just the way it is. You know, he's older than me. He gave life to me. He changed my nappy, for goodness sakes. Um, how, you know, Why would I suddenly start to direct and control him? Um, uh, um, there is a father-son dynamic that exists in the Godhead. But it's not like I'm trying to do what you know, reflect on my own relationship with my father and direct that back into the Godhead. And that's not like God. Uh, Jesus is not saying, you know, how like you've got father-son relationships. So well, it's a bit like that. No, He describes His own relationship with His Father as a father-son relationship. And we've got to keep on remembering that we're not creating God in our image. We've been created in His image. And I think there is a a, a father-son kind of uh, dynamic that exists in our relationships because of the original father son dynamic that exists in the Godhead the son is not the same as the father he's clearly different he looks up to the father he defers to the father so in what uh, uh, um, so in what way can he claim equality with God if all of these things were true well verse 19. Um, Not only does the Father show him more things, but he claims to have the same power and ability as the Father because he says whatever the Father does, the Son also does. There's nothing that God can do that Jesus can't do. He is different, but he's no less than God in power and ability. They're equally God, but different from one another. Just like... um, my father may be, uh, or I may always defer to my father, but it doesn't mean that I'm any less human than my father. We've got different roles, clearly, but we're equally human. Um, we're never going to be the same in any way, but we're equally human in status. Um, and that's why we come up with the, the doctrine of the Trinity three distinct persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, uh, most of what we gain about our understanding of the dynamic and the relationship with the Holy Spirit. We derive from this unique insight we get into the father-son relationship. Three distinct persons, but equally God. There is a hierarchy. Clearly the father, um, uh, then the son, and then the Holy Spirit. But we say they're equally, um, equally God. Now these statements... Um, that tend to trouble us in the West because we love everything to be the same and we love everything to be equal. Um, uh, They often do trouble us because they make us think that Jesus is less than God. I actually um, think they're wonderful because they give us a real deep insight into the inner life of the Trinity. So rather than let them trouble you, I want you to study them and delve into them in richer ways. Let them blow your mind on your understanding of what the Trinity really is on about. And don't just go with what you think, but go with what is there, what Jesus reveals. Uh, they help us to see the dynamic loving relationship that really exists uh, within God. Verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him everything. There's nothing uh, that the Father um, uh, holds back from Jesus. And rather than let that trouble you, that well, why is it that God needs to show realize the the incredible dynamic that exists there and the loving relationship between them. Um, It's why the Son is perfectly happy to submit to His Father in everything and do His Father's will. That's what we discover time and time again in the Scriptures uh, because there is perfect love. And then we discover that this perfect love kind of spills out from the Trinity to us. That's why Jesus came to earth. That's why God saves us in the end. And it works itself out that way. It's a beautiful insight, I think, into the heart of God that helps us understand that a little bit more about how it is that God is love. And so I want to encourage you to look deeply, richly into this beautiful doctrine and pick up these claims that we discover in John's Gospel all the more. Anyway. Secondly, Jesus claims in verse 21 that he is the giver of life. Now, last week, if you were here in John chapter 1, um, we saw that Jesus is presented as the Word of God, who is God, who is there from the beginning. And through the Word of God, everything in the universe came into existence so that our existence, our lives, depended on Jesus. He is the light of life, and he is the one who gives us life from the very beginning. Um, but here... Um, The claim that Jesus makes is more than just he is the one who creates all things. But this is looking towards the end of time. He is the one who raises the dead. Verse 25, the time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And again, you see it in verses uh, 28 to 30 if you jump down a little bit further. Jesus claim here is not only that we owe our existence to him, our very lives but also the hope that we have beyond death if we have any hope of eternal life then it must lie with him because he is the one who has the power to give that life he is the one who gives that life who raises the dead and gives eternal life thirdly Jesus claims to be the judge of all that is The final arbiter who will decide who gets into heaven and who goes to hell. Uh, Have a look at verse 22. All judgment has been given to Jesus. And this is huge because we're talking about the judgment throne of God. And Jesus is saying, you know, guys, how you all believe, you Jews, all believe that you'll be raised again and you'll have to stand before the judgment throne of God. Well, guess who's sitting on that judgment throne? It's me. I'm the one who will decide your fate. I'm the one who, therefore, you need to please and obey and follow. And you might point out that it's actually the Father who gives uh, the life-giving role to the Son and the authority to Jesus. That's what Jesus himself says. Um, verse 27, notice the way that Jesus says it. Um, what he's doing here is, um, you'll notice in verse 27 that he's also claiming another title for himself, which is the Son of Man. And this Son of Man was prophesied about in the Old Testament, specifically from Daniel chapter 7. Because there, in Daniel chapter 7, it's, it's told that the Son of Man is the one who will receive authority from God to rule forever. So he gets it from God the Father. And so... Um, uh, very clearly in Daniel chapter seven, it's this human figure, if you like, uh, this son of man, who's given this godlike status. And rather appropriately, what Jesus is saying is, the Son, or if I might, might want to put it another way, God the Son, is the one who becomes the son of man. He's the one who became flesh and who gets this role as the son of man and at the resurrection after the resurrection he is the human son of man who receives from the father all this authority to rule the world forevermore it's not saying that he didn't have the power within himself uh, beforehand but as this human he now fulfills that special role that the old testament prophesied about and the point is that anyway that jesus claims that these are his jobs now, to raise the dead, to judge all. These are the jobs entrusted to him by God the Father. These two things really that only God can do, and it's like, really what we what we discover is that it's like Jesus is taking on uh, the, the the Father's business, or at least taking on the responsibility in the Father's business. Uh, and and what we see really is. There's no competition. Um, uh, it's the, the dynamic shows itself and the relationship makes it very clear that there really is no competition between the two. Um, he's helping us to see there's perfect harmony, really, between the Father and the Son. Uh, and there is more to God than we realise. Um, you, you can't just limit God down to his attributes um, or even to the omni-words as if they're the way that we understand God. No, from now on, what we need to realise is there is loving relationship in the very heart of God. And that's what makes God so wonderful and precious to us who are Christians. I'm not just blown away by his power and his amazing ability to know all things and to be everywhere. It's the love that he pours out, the love that we see within himself that comes out to us. And from... um, it's that that we fall in love with. Well, that's what we want to encourage you to see and uh, get to know. The purpose of Jesus uh, taking on these jobs that only God can do is made very crystal clear in verse 23 that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. And in fact, the negative makes it more emphatic. If you don't honour the Son, then you don't honour the And this alone is just a huge claim. Every human is to honour Jesus with exactly the same honour as God the Father deserves. If this isn't making the colossal claim that he's equal with God, then I don't know what else you can possibly say would make it any clearer or um, louder. You can't read this in any other way. The same honour that you give to the Father need to give to Jesus as well. If the Jews were in any doubt as to whether he's claiming equality with God, then I think their doubts are cleared away. It's a definite claim to equality. And Jesus is making it crystal clear that they were absolutely right in the first place. But it's one thing to claim these things. It's a very different thing altogether to, to prove it. Uh, and to provide the necessary necessary evidence to back up the claim, um, I still remember uh, when I was teaching scripture in, in uh, to a sixth grade scripture class. You know, you're trying to always find uh, the most interesting things to do to try to get their attention. And I remember walking into the classroom and and saying to them, "Look, um, I finally come to a point where I want to let you in on a secret. Um, I'm Superman." <laughs> and they kind of reacted in the same way, except a little bit more incredulous. And, um, and, and I thought, well, look, you know, I'll, I'll show you something. And I opened up my shirt and there was this S. Um, <laughs> and, of course, that wasn't good enough for them either. And, and so I said, well, what kind of proof would you require for, for me to, sh- to prove to you that I'm, I'm Superman? Well, of course, um, uh, the lesson went on and uh, naturally led into the claims that Jesus made. Um, But surprise, surprise, the kids didn't believe me for a minute. And uh, I was trying to commend them for that because we're not simply asking you to take Jesus' claims or any biblical claims just on the basis that someone has said it or anything like that. What we all want is proof for the evidence. One thing to make the claim that Jesus makes, it's another thing to provide the necessary evidence. And even Jesus recognized it in verse 31. Um, and so now Jesus turns to the evidence that helps people to see his claims are true. And firstly, he points to John the Baptist in verses 32 to 35. Because most of the Jews had already accepted that John himself was a prophet of God. They had to make the harsh decision as to where is John from? What's he saying? Is what he's saying true? And most of the people had decided that John really was a prophet from God, speaking true words. Uh, But when the Jewish authorities sent for John, he came into their presence. They asked him if he was the Messiah, he denied it. And they asked him what what he was doing. And he himself said that he was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And he was pointing to Jesus as the one who was coming, the Messiah, who would save the world. In fact, this testimony is really um, uh, massive in the New Testament. um, So much so that all four Gospels picks up on it because it was really significant for uh, the Jews of the time. But Jesus recognises there's even weighter evidence than John, just John's um, uh, testimony. So the second piece of evidence is his own works. That is, all that Jesus said and done um, is weighty evidence that points to him being divine. In John's Gospel, the miracles that Jesus do- does are called signs. And interestingly, John only records seven uh, of these huge signs, whereas the other uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record lots and lots of other signs that Jesus uh, did. Um, in fact, uh, most people call the first part of John's Gospel, in John's chapters 1 to 12, the Book of Signs, because um, G- uh, John repeatedly mentions the signs that Jesus did and then goes into long dialogues that Jesus goes on. To explain the signs or explain some of the implications of the signs that he did. Um, and the, the second half of the book from uh, chapter 13 onwards is called the book of glory because there Jesus seems to go on about the glory of God. Um, and John tells us in uh, his purpose for writing in, in chapter 20 verse 30 which is really significant for us because uh, why he's highlighting the particular signs that he's doing. He says there that Jesus did many other signs but that these were written about so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. That is, John wants us to understand these miracles that he's writing about are signs. That's important for us to get. I mean, I used to think, really um, in my immaturity when I first became a Christian that the the signs that Jesus was doing were like party tricks and lo and behold when you see that the first sign is Jesus turning water into wine you think well it does seem like a bit of a party trick look at what I can do and I'm just going to blow your mind with the kinds of power and abilities that I can do and that's what you know uh, so if you can impress people why not impress them but that's not what Jesus is on about um, he's not just trying to draw attention to himself and his abilities. The miracles of Jesus are signs, that is, they point to something. That's what a sign does. You don't look at a stop sign and think, oh, that sign's impressive. No, you, you, you work out what the implication is, uh, what it's pointing to, and then you follow that rather than just read the sign out. Um You're not just meant to be impressed by the sign, but what they're pointing to. That is, I mean, the the signs of Jesus are impressive. But what is more impressive is to the bigger um, implications that they're pointing us to. There's a deliberateness to the signs, in other words. They're not just random miracles showcasing the power of Jesus. They point to who Jesus is, what he was on about. Did you notice that in the story that I told you at the beginning that there were lots of other invalids there? There were blind and those who couldn't hear and all sorts of different types of invalids. But Jesus specifically picks out this man because he knows the commotion it's going to cause. He knows the ongoing consequences um, and what's going to happen and the dialogue that will lead to. Because what he's trying to do is showcase who he is and what he's come to do um, he wanted people to see that he had the power over sin and death and over the curse of his fallen world he does what God himself in the Old Testament promised he would do to bring about the new heavens and the new earth and the signs all point to that they're trying to show that he is the God come in the flesh to bring about all those Old Testament promises. The Jewish authorities couldn't deny see that the signs had happened. They couldn't deny this guy had gotten up and was walking and carrying his mat. But they just got caught up in the sign. Well, he is walking, but he's carrying his mat. And he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And they couldn't get beyond that. But they couldn't get to the fact that Jesus is doing this because he's trying to show them something even more significant. That he, in fact, is Lord over the Sabbath. That he is equal with his Father, able to work even on the Sabbath. But they don't look at the fact that Jesus can do these things, even on the Sabbath. They just get caught up in the fact that he's breaking the Sabbath. Even when Jesus is trying to helpfully show them that he's greater than what their concepts allow him to be. He was pointing to the fact that he was equal with God. Well, the final evidence, um, and and I might point out that uh, Jesus goes on to give greater evidence of which the greatest is the resurrection of the dead. We'll come to that in a few weeks' time. But the final evidence that Jesus gives in verse 37 is the Father's testimony about him, by which he means the Word of God, the Bible, and he calls this his Father's Word. He makes the claim uh, that the Old Testament is his Father's Word, which is all about him. You can see that in verse 39 and in other places there. And this is incredibly weighty evidence for Jesus. I, I think lots of us don't actually appreciate, I certainly didn't appreciate it when I was a young Christian, how significant the Old Testament did. In fact, when I was a young Christian, I used to think, I wish we just had the New Testament because the Old Testament is long, boring and complicated. And I can't quite make out what it's all about. So I wish that we just had the New Testament and then that's all I would have to know and and analyse and share with my friends. Because it seemed to me that the Old Testament just got in the way. Um, It was a burden anyway for me. And So I largely ignored it. But over time I've come to realise just how hugely important it is not just for my understanding but as evidence and support for my understanding of who jesus is and what he's done in the new testament Um, it really helps me to see who jesus is but it provides massive evidence because what i realise is that jesus hasn't come in a vacuum he didn't just come out all of a sudden but there's 1400 years of prophetic history that help us to see why it is what Jesus is doing is so significant and who he is and why we needed Jesus to do the very things that he need, that He did ultimately. And why his death and his resurrection are so profound and significant for us to understand and follow. These 1400 years of evidence is massively important. And I think they actually provide the greatest weight of evidence for us, the biggest apologetic for the truth of Christianity. It's why the New Testament so regularly quotes the Old Testament to show that there is a real tight link between the two Testaments. That there's actually one unfolding story that maps itself out into uh, the person and work of Jesus as the climax of the story. Uh, It's this plot line that helps us to make sense of Jesus and what he achieved for us. And the Old Testament, really, um, like I said, is the major weight of evidence uh, for, for Jesus. You don't get that in Buddhism, or in Islam, or in any other faith that you can think of. Where the, the, the main um, people in, the, in, their, in their faith just seem to come out of a vacuum. And they can't point to, even Islam, which points to the prophets, refuses to acknowledge uh, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament as authentic documents nowadays because they know that it doesn't back up their claims. It, they can't actually bear the weight. To which, but we as Christians continue to print and encourage you to study the Old Testament because it massively shows the deep connection there is between the two. It is a major apologetic. And over the years, I've come to realise just how significant it is, and in particular, my work with uh, reaching out to to cousins on the campus. Uh, That's what I really uh, uh, lean heavily upon. So we have seen, I think, these massive, colossal claims that Jesus makes, and we've been presented with the evidence for that. How do we respond? Well, if you're like the Jews and you don't believe it because you continue to be a sceptic, then Jesus must be a blasphemer. They rightly put him to death. The cross of Jesus is not a tragedy, but actually a triumph for truth. And therefore it should be ignored. And more importantly, you should speak against it. Because there's millions of people around the world who have followed it as the truth. But what I want to suggest suggest is you just can't simply uh, claim uh, that jesus is a good person or that uh, it doesn't really matter or he's uh, largely to be ignored uh, as c.s lewis once put it he's either a liar and what he said was deliberately deceptive and untrue and has deceived millions of people even people who are willing to die for this lie or he was a lunatic he really did think he was god but he was clearly deluded but the problem with that is The evidence just doesn't point in that direction at all. I don't think you can conclude that whatsoever. Or you have to conclude ultimately that he was who he claimed to be. The Lord, the Son of God, equal with the Father, the life-giving Son of God who will judge the world, who will raise the dead and give eternal life to those who believe in him. And if you conclude on the weight of the evidence that Jesus is Lord, then it's only fitting that you honour the Son as you would honour God, the Father. That you worship Him with your whole life, because that is what He rightly deserves. And secondly, you should believe in His promise, which He gives in verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. You should believe in him as the one who has the power to raise you on the last day, as the one who has the power to give you eternal life and live forever. He came to offer people hope and life into a kingdom that would never end, a kingdom that overcame all the fallenness and brokenness and sinfulness Of this world. And that sin even includes our sin that we've done against God. He came to bring forgiveness and salvation to all so that in the end, we who deserve judgment wouldn't have to face the judgment and be condemned to hell, but rather be given what we didn't really even ask for and especially didn't deserve eternal life with Him in a brand new heavens and new earth forever and ever. Jesus does claim to be God. He backed up that claim with impressive science, the greatest of which really was his resurrection from the dead. And he's got incredibly weighty evidence for us in the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets who spoke over 1400 years. We've got good reason to believe in him with massive benefits for us. Colossal, explosive claims of Jesus with colossal, explosive implications for those who accept them. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, uh, we thank you for this incredible insight that we get from Jesus into the very heart and life of the Trinity. We thank you that we see in you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, this amazing love. This desire to see love being poured out. And we thank you that it is poured out to us and includes us. Thank you for all that Jesus said, all that he did, especially for his death and resurrection, which massively benefits us. We pray that all of us would see Jesus for who he truly is and give him the honour that he deserves and believe in the promises that he makes to us that we all may gain life and cross over from death to life. And we pray this in his name. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.